child Yeah, your skin can bring you so much pain Now I hear you say You got the best of both ways Won't you come and take a walk in my shoes And tell me if you take my place Under the cover of my skin Okay, I'm here with Alan McCubbin and Steph Gaskell. They are both accredited sports dietitians from Monash University. You've probably heard Steph's name before because she helped me when I was preparing for the World Championships Marathon in Doha. And Alan, he's also been a guest on our show before. Is that right, Alan? Yeah, a couple of times now. Oh, there yep. you go. Yeah. Um, welcome, Steph. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. Yep. Thank Why do they call you sub two hours, Steph? <laughs> I don't know. The boys were mucking around and then I made up this story about shoes and and, and me running a sub two hour marathon and so now I've got my name sub two hour. Oh, you made a claim. Yep. All right. <laughs> now, Alan and Steph are here to chat about heat and in particular training and performing in the heat. Um, Alan, I'll let you introduce what you're here to chat about today. Yeah, sure. So obviously there's a, a big focus at the moment. Um, obviously we're coming into summer in Australia, so big um, component of you know what it takes to train and perform well in the heat. But thinking ahead, uh, obviously we've got the Tokyo Olympics next year and that's been a big focus, although that's kind of taken the edge off a bit, moving the, the marathon you know north to Sapporo, which is announced you know, a month or so ago uh, and then obviously you know recently we had, had yourself over in Doha for the world champs so there's been a lot of focus in the last sort of six to 12 months on on this issue of, of performing in the heat um, so because of that sports dietitians Australia had their recent conference in October and that was the topic for that entire conference and uh, as a result of that they've actually produced a, a position statement which sort of covers all everything you want to know really about nutrition for for training and competition in the heat and that's going to be out uh, available in in january in the international journal of sport nutrition exercise metabolism uh, but the good news is that sounds big and scary and academic but there's no uh this will be a an open access paper so you won't have to pay to access it so anyone in the world can download it um, and it's also written in um it, it's a pretty easy read compared to a lot of academic papers uh, and it's quite practical so it does go through some theoretical stuff at the start but there's a lot of practical stuff in there including a massive long table of all sort of the practical recommendations and so who was this aimed at so what this paper was produced for the benefit of everybody or was it produced like under direction from athletics australia or something like that no so it was uh it was produced on behalf of sports diet Dietitians Australia, um, but that said, the target audience of the paper is not just sports dietitians. It's really, you know, exercise physiologists, coaches, trainers, uh, and even potentially athletes themselves. Really, anyone who's interested in the science of, you know, performing in the heat and, and what you can do from a nutrition perspective to improve that. Okay, cool. Sounds good. Um, sounds mm. relevant. It's getting hot now. Yeah. We're all wondering Absolutely. what we should do. How many shots tablets we should put in our drink bottle? That's the one. <laughs> 
Um, so I guess we'll start with something pretty basic and maybe an underlying um, uh, concept. What? How does a how does heat affect performance? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and it's a really relevant one because it really depends on what sort of performance you're talking about. So um, there's some data was collected, it was quite a few years ago now, but they sort of compared um, times in athletics championship events from you know very hot events to, to very cool events. And what you generally find is that the sprint events actually you perform better in the heat. So the 100, the 200, uh, and possibly even the 400, you tend to perform better in a hot environment. Um, the middle distance events, sort of 1,800 up to about um, 5K, uh, definitely 18 and 1,500. Generally, there's not much difference. Uh, and once you start to get up to sort of 5 to 10K plus, then generally you perform worse in the heat um, because obviously you're reducing all this body heat that your body's got to get rid of uh, and that becomes a, a challenge um, once you start generating that heat over a prolonged period of time. So why, do short, why does it improve in performance in short distance running? Um, it's to do with the temperature of your muscles, essentially. So if you think about, you know, sprinters will always warm up before they run um, or, you know, most people warm up before they exercise and you're trying to warm up the muscle uh, in a hot environment the muscle's already warmer than it would be in a in a cooler environment and that basically facilitates all the the biochemical bits and pieces and all the contractions and things that go on at sort of the the muscle fiber level that that help you pr um, essentially produce power so what are we talking about five minutes is that about the time before it starts to worsen uh, it seems to be so the analysis they did suggests that you know uh, everything up to 400 meter tends to be better. 1800 and 1500 are pretty similar. Uh, 5k maybe fractionally worse, and then sort of 10k onwards starts to get worse. So yeah, it's probably around that kind of 15 minute mark, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. Um, is it is there a specific temperature when it starts to affect, or how do we rate like the threshold where where heat becomes a problem for us? Yeah, that's, that's kind of a, a million-dollar question, and we had a great presentation actually at the conference on this from uh, Ollie Jay, who's a researcher up in Sydney, um, and he's done a whole lot of work in this area looking at the effects of temperature versus the effects of humidity and airflow and all of these things. And, um, you know, we were talking off-air before the fact that, you know, today it's about 27, 28 degrees in Melbourne, but it's, you know, it's a dry 27, 28 degrees. It's not very humid, whereas if you went up to Cairns and it was 27 or 28 degrees, you'd you know, you'd really feel the difference uh, in terms of uh, how you're working. And, and that's a really important point is that we can't just look at, at a weather forecast at the degree Celsius and say that's the effect it's going to have on us because the humidity um, greatly impacts on how much our sweat can evaporate and that has an impact on how, how effective that sweat is at keeping us cool. Things like airflow, so just how windy it is on the day, will have an effect as well. Um, not so much relevant to running, but in other sports, how much clothing and protective equipment you have to wear, all of those things will, will play into it. So you can't really just have a, a number and say, you know, above this degrees, it's a problem because there's all of these factors going into it. And what Ollie's team do is actually have a, an algorithm and it's custom built for different sports where they plug all of these values into it and, and create what they call a heat stress index. And they've created that if anyone watches the Australian Tennis Open, you might have seen the heat stress index and uh, at times they've closed the roof because of it or stopped play on the outside courts because mm. of it uh, or taken extra drink breaks and so on. So, uh, yeah, there's there's a fair bit that goes into it from a physiology perspective rather than just saying this is the number. So uh, 
Steph, you watched the women's marathon in Doha. Mm. Where does that rate on the stress index? Did anyone put that in the calculator? I don't. Did they, Alan? I don't think they did. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think Ollie's created a stress index calendar specifically for for running. Um, uh, okay. I'm not sure other other people have. Um, but yeah, I mean, the fact that there wasn't blazing sun shining down would have helped. Um, but then obviously it was was hot and was was it more humid for oh, the women's race? So than it was? humid. Yeah, they they got yeah. the worst of it. Yeah. So that, that makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah, no, because that was one of the big differences between the men's race and the women's race is the temperature wasn't a big difference, but I think the we humidity. had like, yeah, the humidity was hugely different. Yeah, yeah. and basically when you, when you sweat, the, the way it cools you down is by evaporating off your skin, and it does that by having a difference between the humidity of the air and the humidity on your skin and so if that difference isn't as great because the air is very humid then you don't get as much evaporation and you don't get the same cooling effect from the sweat that you do produce so it tends to just beat up on your on your skin and stay there and you know anyone running in a sort of a tropical environment would would appreciate that compared to running in a dry environment and i had i had a lot of people um actually concerned about my health during the the week leading in because the media got hold of it and they putting up for images of people passing out, that kind of thing. So there were actually like family members saying, hey, is this safe for you to do this? What, does, what are the health risks or the, um, the, the real dangers with running in the heat like this? Yeah, it, it kind of, it's a bit of a continuum and there's kind of three sort of main medical conditions that are kind of described. You've got sort of exertional heat illness at the, the lower end of the spectrum um, and that can be, you know, you, as you, you exercise and your body heats up, you, you tend to dilate your blood vessels so they get bigger um, and that's well and good but what tends to happen is your blood pressure starts to fall, you rely on your, your calf muscles contracting to pump blood back up um, from your feet towards back towards your circulation back to your heart uh, and so what can happen is if you suddenly stop running you can um you know you have that blood pooling at your feet and you can actually faint because of it it's called heat syncope um and that can happen uh you know anything around sort of 38 and a half up to you know 40 degrees body temperature that is yeah uh, not not air temperature, um, and then as as you sort of go through that continuum, you can start to get you know damage to to organs, um, but you need a more sort of sustained probably thirty nine thirty nine and a half plus degree temperature you know for a period of time for that to occur. Uh, and Steph can talk about some of the gastrointestinal implications of that as well. Um, and then at the, the extreme end of the scale is what we call exertional heat stroke, uh, which is all usually but not always associated with a body temperature above 40. Um, and that's where you get quite a, a range of issues happening in terms of um, affecting your know, conscious state. People can get seizures and you know, become unconscious. You can have organ failure and all sort of nasty stuff, your gut barrier between you know what's inside your intestinal tract and the blood breaks down and you get um, bits and pieces coming across into your blood and, and causing infections and all sorts of nasty stuff and that's really a medical emergency but that's very much the extreme end of the scale and you don't see that very commonly so um as a runner does that like our body will not let us run any further to try to avoid this happening right that's so when we see callum hawkins falling over in the Kong Games and the, like everyone at Doha and the marathon is just basically, I saw it even in the walks events, people just falling over. Is that their body stopping them 
from putting themselves into more harm? Uh, it could well be. I mean, unless you have, you know, a rectal thermometer on hand at the time and a whole bunch of other medical kit, it's hard to say exactly what's going on, just watching it on TV. But, um, yeah, that would be probably towards the sort of the mild to moderate end of that spectrum. You know, um, exertional heat stroke, as I said, is pretty rare. Um, and it's, you know, it's a life-threatening condition that requires, like, immediate cooling. But, as I said, it doesn't actually happen that often in reality. Uh, there have been examples historically of where that's happened, and it has been associated with actually um, some banned substances over the years. So things like amphetamines actually sort of block that fatigue signal from a very high body temperature and allow you to push yourself too far. And there was an example of that in the Tour de France back in the 1960s, a guy from the UK who actually died on one of the big climbs there from exertional, well, thought from exertional heat stroke and um, evidence of amphetamine use there. Yeah. Does that happen at music festivals when they dance all day in the sun? <laughs> it, it could, and that is definitely a risk. It's the sort of things that you have to be careful about, yeah. all jokes aside, yeah. Um, Steph, and, oh, sorry, go on. Oh, no, I was, I was just going to say, like, um, you know, probably like the, a lot of, you know, athletes in that environment, in that heat, like if we did have a rectal thermometer up their bum just to, to check their temp, um, you know, the, the, the temperature probably is and there has been some people recorded as getting it over, you know, the 40 degrees or so. And and even in the race walkers, like there's already been some research in race walkers and although some people would think, you know, they probably can't get their temp up that high, they definitely do get it over, you know, that sort of 39 degrees or so. Um, and everyone's kind of got, you know, a different ability to thermoregulate um, and obviously it's also dependent on how well um, they acclimatise, et cetera, and what strategies they're putting in. Um, but we know that when that body temperature gets to like, you know, 39 degrees or so, um, that that's where we can get, you know, a reasonable amount of damage to the gut. Um, and And like with the damage to the gut, we can also get, the gut not functioning as well, which then will have an impact on how well we can, you know, digest and break down food and absorb our nutrients that we're getting. Um, and, and you know, the longer duration events, then, you know, the I guess the longer um, time we have to, to do more and more damage. So when we're thinking about, you know, nutrition strategies for performing in the heat, like we're also thinking about, well, how can we prevent or reduce the impact um, the heat has on the gut as well? Because that also will impact on your on your performance. Yeah, because you were when you drew up my um, fuel strategy for the marathon, it was much less than what I would normally take. And uh, you mentioned it was due to the the temperature; it was going to affect how I could um, absorb it. So I was I might be able to take it on, but it wouldn't get used properly. Is that right? Yeah, so it's um so in terms of your during like the during race nutrition strategy, um it's like, like with carb intake and you know like you always see on gels or on products how they say okay like the standard recommendation might be have a gel within you know forty five minutes or so, um that's like just this kind of blanket recommendation which real like it's not individualized and so each person obviously has a different ability to you know, break down the carbs and oxidize it, which is going to vary depending on people's diet, on their fitness level, 
um, etc. And then also carb intake. Um, we also need to consider how much we recommend someone depending on their environment. So you know whether you're when you're in a hot condition compared to cooler. Generally, in the cooler condition, you should be able to tolerate um, you know more carbohydrate because also we're not getting as we've got less risk of being more dehydrated, I guess, as well. Mm-hmm. Less impact on the gut as well. Um, you know, it's also going to vary in terms of when we're uh, racing or training at altitude. You know, that also will influence our carb intake. Um, so, um, so for you, that's where like you you typically we're getting in like you get in a reasonable amount of carb per hour, which is fantastic. Um, but I was also just thinking, okay, like I also just want to think about minimizing any risk for you as well. So that's why I kind of like we looked at um, sort of um, increasing your carb intake, particularly leading in a couple of days leading in to take advantage of making sure you're entering into that race kind of, you know, super saturated with carbs in your muscles um, so that then we it wasn't too much of an issue if we did need a dial down and we also did that sort of pre-carb, you know, bolus before you you started racing um but you ended up doing an awesome job and being able to tolerate i think you know we worked out roughly maybe around sort of towards the 80 maybe 70 to 80 grams of carbs an hour um just because i guess also we had that ability of having those frequent aid stations as well that's right um And, and the important thing from the gut perspective for me um, and, and from what we know in research is um, we want to um, not overwhelm your gut. So small frequent intake is, is really good because it's easier for your gut to kind of take on, but then it also helps with, I guess, promoting um, blood flow in a way to, to, um, to the gut as well, which is um, another thing that we want to do. So, um yeah, so I guess that's kind of, you know, we can always have sort of this this guideline, and I'll, um, but then it's, you know, when you come to race day, at least, you know, you know what you can kind of um, work between. Yeah, and I think we'll do another episode on the guidelines for normal normal conditions, or uh, and we'll talk about that carb load more. It sounds a lot better than it actually is. Uh, everyone's thinking that that sounds fantastic, but when you actually break down what foods you're eating and that when that carb saturation is actually not that enjoyable. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so we'll we'll chat about that in a different episode. But out from this paper coming out, do you think it's going to change how people prepare for Tokyo than how they prepared for Doha? Is there anything kind of groundbreaking in it? Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I was going to say I think there's a a couple of things that are relative, not necessarily that new, but probably people haven't necessarily heard that much about. I was just going to backtrack one sec, and I was going to say one of the probably the the myths or misconceptions about heat be that the longer the event is, the higher your body temperature gets. But often it's actually the reverse because if you think about it, when you're running say a 10k or a half marathon, you know the your pace is obviously higher, um, and your pace is the rate that essentially you're going to be contracting your muscles, producing energy, and that's the rate that you're producing heat at as well. So generally, if you if you measure someone's you know, rectal temperature as they cross the finish line of a, a 10K or a half marathon, it's generally going to be higher than a marathon and probably higher again than an ultra. Um, 
So that that's one side of the story. And the other part is how long you're exposed to that higher temperature. So, you know, Steph mentioned that the gut issues above 39. And what we tend to see is you have to be over 39 for at least a couple of hours to see that sort of breakdown uh, issue occur. If, you, if you're at that for, you know, only an hour or so, it's it's much less of an issue. Um, but coming back to sort of the, the novel stuff or, or what's new, uh, I think there's a couple of areas. One is, uh, you know, we've sort of talked about hydration for years. I think we're in a, a stage now in hydration research where that's becoming a bit more practical, um, hopefully. And I think people are sort of hopefully coming in from the, the two extremes. There's always been this debate in hydration for years about, you know, how much you should drink and whether you should drink to thirst or you should drink to a plan and that sort of thing. And I think we're slowly starting to come towards a bit of a consensus. I don't think we're there yet, but we're getting there. Um, I think some of the pre-exercise hydration stuff, which you guys can maybe talk about, you know, what happened for you in, in Doha in terms of the sodium loading and so on. Um, some of the other stuff that's been around since probably the Beijing Olympics is the pre-cooling, like using ice slushies and stuff before exercise. But it's still something that not everyone knows about necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably the the newer areas, one is is the use of glycerol to uh, rather than sodium to pre, you know, hyperhydrate or overhydrate prior to exercise and glycerol was something that was actually banned by WADA I think it was about 2010 or 2011 from memory and so a lot of the research in that area kind of stopped Um, and the reason it was banned is they thought it could be a masking agent for other substances so not that it was a problem in itself Um, but they you know did some follow-up research and realized that actually no it wasn't a problem so that was then taken off the banned substances list only about 18 months ago so we may see a big use of glycerol again again come tokyo um and then the final area is uh, an interesting one and it's it's changing not changing your body temperature at all but changing your perception of body temperature using menthol um so anyone who's had like fisherman's friends or um any of those sort of lollies that have a lot of menthol in them you get that sort of cooling feeling in your mouth when you have it you can apply menthol gel on your skin and things like that which also gives you your cooling sensation so um, you can actually change your perception of heat without changing the actual body temperature that you're running at yeah okay yeah it was interesting at in Doha to see only maybe four countries um, pre-cooling like yep. using using ice but out of everybody and uh, they, they're the ones that sort of had the physiologists working for them maybe mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah I watched I watched an African team run for like 15 minutes beforehand in full track suits mm. uh, which is kind of doing the opposite of what they were what you guys would sort of suggest for them to do but yeah yeah they i mean they weren't the ones that actually did that well though so that was interesting um yeah and certainly listening to um you know a couple of the race walkers in doha that, that did quite well and you know they were saying you know all the media and people were complaining about the heat and da 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 and he's saying well we all knew it was going to be hot. Like, if you're not prepared for that, you just haven't done your homework. Yeah. Like, there's all this, all these strategies out there, you know, with possibly the exception of menthol. None of them are particularly new. They just haven't been taken up by a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I think the Australians with Brent, Brent Valance, you guys probably know mm. Brent. Um, he seemed to be, he was actually experimenting with glycerol. I think there was a study being done, glycerol loading before the uh, run. Yeah. Um, mm. You, Steph, you had me take on about 2,500 milligrams of sodium two hours before the run. Mm, yep. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, so Alan's the expert in anything sort of sodium and um, I guess hydration-wise, but I knew that, you know, he'd 
Matt's just recently completed his PhD in the area. So, um, you know, whenever I do a nutrition plan for something like this, I'm always, you know, trying to get other people's um, input as well where I know they're researching. So um, this was something Alan had mentioned to me. So uh, I knew it wouldn't taste great. So that's why I wanted you to, you know, do a bit of um, trialing with it. Um, But it's basically, I guess, Alan can add in a lot more here, but it's to help with your thermoregulation. So it's to help, I guess, would you say increase your your plasma volume, um, which is just going to help reduce your overall sort of thermal strain, Alan? Yeah, pretty much. So, I mean, I guess the idea behind the sodium bloating is is you're trying to get more hydrated, so get more water into the body. But, you know, if you just drink plain water, one of two things is going to happen. You're either just going to pee it straight out again and you really haven't achieved anything and it's been inconvenient to you, um, or in some exercise situations, it's like when you're over drinking you can have all that water move into the cells and cause hyponatremia um, or you know the symptoms of hyponatremia which is sort of a dangerous medical condition which you don't want that either so um, the, the purpose of adding the sodium to the water is that it basically you're trying to get that mixture of water and sodium so it's retained exactly right so you're trying to get um, the concentration of sodium within that water about the same as what the concentration of sodium is in your blood um, and then you know the body will keep it in that that fluid compartment of the body not pee as much of it out and not shunt it on into the inside the cells Uh, and so the idea is by keeping that extra water um, you can tolerate obviously a greater degree of of fluid loss um, before you're quote-unquote dehydrated Um, and and as Steph said you know if you've got more water in your body um, it's just basic physics it takes more heat to heat the body up so for the we're coming into a warm season. If I wake up in the morning, I go and have a wee and I've got really dark urine, should I be drinking water before my run or should I have an electrolyte straight away, electrolyte tablet with my drink or a Gatorade or something like that? That's a very good question. The problem with urine colour is it's not always very reliable to assess hydration status. So if you've done a big run the day before, for example, then your urine's probably a pretty unreliable indicator of what's going on. Um, but that said, if you're well rested and you haven't done anything the day before or you just had a, you know, an easy run in the morning or something and it's you know full 24 hours later, then it's probably okay. Um, Which would not be Julian. He would have done a double run, I'm sure. Oh, there you not go. lately. <laughs> it's more like the beer-related beer, the beer related darkness. <laughs> mm. So I, I think one of the... Um, the difficulties with interpreting urine is that people assume that urine is a reflection of what's going on in the body, whereas urine is really what the kidneys are trying to do to keep the body in balance, if that makes sense. And so just because you've got dark urine doesn't necessarily mean that you, you're dehydrated. It can in a lot of situations, but there are examples like during heat acclimation, for example, you're always going to have dark urine because your body's retaining more water and so it's not peeing it out. Um, it doesn't mean you're more dehydrated. In fact, you're becoming you know, progressively better hydrated, but it doesn't necessarily mean you, you'll have clear pee. Um, so, yeah, urine's an interesting one. It's, you know, it's been used for decades. Uh, it's cheap. It's easy to do. Anyone can do it. Um, but there are a few caveats in terms of using urine colour or even some of the more sophisticated measures, urine-specific gravity and stuff that, that some clinicians might use. Um, it's still, um, you have to interpret it with caution. So how much, like, 
In terms of hydrating during the day, for instance, if, if I'm at work during the day, I have a training session 5 p.m. after work, should I be drinking pure water from a drink bottle? Should I be using electrolytes? Does this depend on my diet? Because this is a very confusing topic. Yeah. yeah. So we, we talk about this in the um, in the consensus statement or position statement. Um, for example, post-exercise, um, there's been some great work done at Griffith University up in Queensland um, that's shown basically you can just drink normal water as long as you're having food with that, like your normal meal or something within an hour or two of exercise, then the effect of having water is not going to be any different from having electrolytes or milk or, or anything else. Um, so it really depends on the context of, you know, what else you're having with the fluid and when your next session is and how, you know, how quickly you need to rehydrate from one session to the next. If you need to rehydrate within, you know, a matter of a couple of hours, then probably, yes, having something with some electrolytes in it will be beneficial. Um, but if you're talking, you know, 12 hours or 15 hours or something and you're going to have, you know, your normal meals and, and snacks and stuff in there, then probably the choice of drink doesn't make any difference. Okay, interesting. Um, now, we also discussed, Steph and I, how much sodium should I take during the run? Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've done a PhD in sodium and endurance athletes, and I don't feel I'm much closer to answering <laughs> that question as well. Um, it's, it's an interesting one. And, and traditionally, I mean, you can take sweat samples, and, you know, I did huge amount of that during my research in terms of working out how much sodium individuals are losing the question is once you know how much someone's losing how much of that should you replace should you replace 100 percent of that 50 percent of that none does it matter um i'd suggest probably um my thinking sort of gone around in in loops and circles and tied itself in knots over the years but i think where i've sort of come to is it's not so much about trying to match a certain percentage of your sodium loss. It's actually trying to balance the sodium that you're consuming with the water you're consuming. So you're not, you know, having too much sodium relative to water or too much water relative to sodium um, because either of those things are going to upset the balance in terms of fluid between the fluid inside your cells and the fluid on the outside in, in terms of in your blood and, and surrounding your cells. And so if you have just pure water, particularly over a long period of time, and particularly if you drink too much of it, it's going to move towards the inside of your cells. But on the other hand, if you have bucket loads of sodium, like you're just downing salt capsules and stuff and actually not drinking that much, the reverse is going to happen. The water's going to be pulled out of your cells. Um, and neither of those things are probably a desirable outcome. Um, so my suggestion now is that, you know, if you know that you're a saltier sweater in terms of you had that measured, then probably you need to be at the higher end. Um, but if you you know you don't lose that much sodium in your sweat, then you can be at the lower end. But even the measurement of sweat sodium is not a very precise thing. So, and it varies so much in different scenarios, different weather conditions, different pace, different body temperatures, all that kind of stuff. So, um, I guess my practical take home from there is that if you're going to measure sweat sodium content and you get your number might be you know 60 millimole per liter or whatever it is it's not a definite number so you're not saying i'm a 60 person and this person's a 40 person it's more i'm probably at the higher end of normal and that person's you know somewhere in the middle or at the lower end or whatever and so i need to be a bit more conscious about it but i don't think we're any closer to really saying this is exactly what you need to do and as i said it's so much so variable from day to day that that would be almost impossible anyway mm, yeah no that's i don't think any listener knows what to do now <laughs> yeah, I know, and also practitioners, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we love just a nice, you know, simple guide. Um, but you know, I I think again, like 
just where it is so individual and, you know, depends on the environment, the, I guess, the fitness, how acclimatised a person is, et cetera, as well too, Alan. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all of those things will make a difference. So basically your sweat sodium concentration increases with sweat rate. So anything that makes your sweat rate higher, whether it's you're running faster, the weather's hotter or more humid, um, there's less airflow like running indoors on a treadmill compared to outdoors, any of those things will increase the sweat sodium concentration. Uh, and it doesn't mean it's an emergency and we need to panic. It just That's just the effect that it has. Um, so I guess, yeah, I think from a practical perspective, uh, if you do get your sodium measured, you sort of just need to know am I at the higher, the middle or the lower end and then kind of adjust the, the sodium in what you're drinking with the, the help of someone who can help you plan that um, to, you know, roughly match what, you, what you're doing but realise that you're never going to get it exactly right on any given day. So as long as you're in the ballpark, that's probably fine. Uh, and the, the reason I tend to like matching the sodium concentration of your fluid to the sweat sodium concentration is that it's scalable. So if you drink 100% of your fluid losses, well, you're still matching the sodium to the fluid. Or if you only drink 20% of your fluid losses, you, again, and you're still matching it because as the volume of drink goes up and down, the amount of sodium goes up and down with it in proportion. How am I going to know mid-race, say I do a 100K ultra, how am I going to know whether, I'm, whether I need more sodium or whether I need more water? What's, the, what's going to be the signs that tell me that? Very difficult to answer that. Um, there's not really any good ones, to be honest. Um, people talk about, oh, you know, getting a salt crust on my skin must mean that I'm losing a lot of sweat, uh, losing a lot of salt in my sweat. Uh, well, yes, but that can accumulate over hours anyway, even if you're not a very salty sweater. And if you're wearing dark-coloured clothing, you're more likely to see it than if you're wearing white clothing. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that's a very reliable indicator. Um, this is one of the arguments that, you know, people are having in the sort of drink to thirst versus drink to a plan debate is saying, well, if I drink to a plan and it's 20% off on any given day, by the time I'm up to eight, 10 hours in, you go 10% off per hour over mm -hmm. 10 hours, all of a sudden that's a huge discrepancy between what I'm losing and what I'm drinking. Um, and, and I tend to agree with that. I think in those sort of longer events that you kind of have to use thirst as a guide to some extent because there's not much else you can use. You know, if, if you do pee, urine's going to be very unreliable during exercise, so I wouldn't trust that. Um, as I said, salt on your skin's not going to be reliable. Um, pretty much the only thing that we can do, you know, short of, of stopping taking a blood test and waiting 10 minutes is, is thirst. It's really the only feedback mechanism that we're going to have. Sodium intake and cramping. That's one that everyone loves talking about. <laughs> oh, yeah. So where do we fall on that one, professionals? It's another interesting area. Um, you know, five years ago, the general consensus had come to sodium's got nothing to do with cramping. It's all about muscle fatigue, that kind of thing. Um, sort of the research in this area goes back to like miners in the 1920s and 30s. But um, just this year, actually, there's been a couple of papers published that suggest that the issue is not necessarily uh, a loss of sodium during exercise or dehydration per se. It's one thing that may increase your risk of cramping is actually suddenly diluting the sodium in your blood very quickly. So if you become dehydrated during exercise, what tends to happen is you're losing more water than you're losing sodium. So the blood sodium concentration actually goes up as you become dehydrated by definition. Um, and no matter how salty your squirt is, that will always happen. But if you suddenly, if you're quite dehydrated and then you suddenly scull a lot of plain water, 
that seems to be one of the things that is going to increase your risk of cramping. Uh, and so you can see this during exercise, but you often see this after a race. You know, people stop running. Um, they're all relaxed. They go, you know, have a bit of water because they're thirsty. And all of a sudden, you know, half an hour later, they start cramping, yep. uh, even though the race is already finished. Um, Steph, so I told you during my, like, when I wrote out my plan and everything, um, that I would drink beer most nights. Now, as it gets <laughs> hotter... <laughs> As it gets hotter, is that getting worse for me or is it okay to continue with a few beers after a, a training session or yeah. what effect does heat have on alcohol and, and hydration? Um, I mean, like alcohol has a bit of that diuretic um, effect, but, you know, I would say like focus on getting in some like rehydrating quite well so you know at dinner you might have your a bit of water with your with your food and stuff so you've got your electrolytes from food carbs from food which will help retain the fluid that you're drinking and and you can definitely have some beers but just make sure you also you know have some of the water coming in it's got to be practical and and you know sociable and something that you enjoy as well um so i yeah would you want to add to that alan i was going to say that the guys up in queensland that we were talking about before that did yeah. the post-exercise rehydration stuff they've done a lot of work in beer and, and post-exercise hydration and they've all done all sorts of weird stuff like adding and, salt to beer to see what effect oh, it has and all of kinds one. of stuff and yeah percentage um, of alcohol as well I think. yeah so to yeah. generally less than about four percent alcohol um you don't get much of a diuretic effect at all so you know, maybe in the hot weather, you just go to lighter beers and drink more of them. Um, okay, might be the might be the way to go, um, <laughs> or, or drink the same amount but just the lighter beers. Um, but yeah, they added salt to it, and uh, apparently, a... in a small amount, it was okay. But once they started adding a lot, it tasted bloody horrible, and they had beers exploding and all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff that you do when you get to do beer research. It's a good way to stop you from drinking the beer, telling someone they have to put a spoonful of salt in. Exactly. Uh, all right. Um, now, Steph, is there anything, if, say, for instance, uh, let's Ali goes and runs the marathon in t Tokyo, is there anything that you would do different in how you uh, prepared her for the heat on the day than how you prepared me? Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, you're both, you're both very different in terms of, different body mass um you know she i i don't um know what ellie's been doing sort of nutrition wise and and you know and carb intake and gut training wise and and fluid tolerance and you know gut symptoms so like there's always you know these kind of key factors that we're that we're looking at in terms of you know fluid carbohydrate intake um like what alan said you know menthol all of those types of things, um, but then we need to key it in to that specific individual. Um, and then, like I also like for you, we also looked at you know that lead-in diet. I, a big thing for me for your race for Doha, we backed off of too much sort of um, you know bulk and residue because you were racing at like um, you know midnight. Yes. Um, so you've obviously got all this kind of gastric load um, coming in so then you, you're putting a big demand on, on your gut when you're racing. 
compared to, you know, if we're racing, you know, in the morning, you, you kind of have that bigger time to fast. So, you know, for you, we sort of focused on really making sure we kind of got all that timing and, and stuff right for for Ellie, for, for Tokyo. Um, you know, we'd have a look at when her race start was. I would I would implement in the heat for someone, I would still look at reducing the total FODMAP intake just because, like my study showed um, last year, which just got published, um, that, you know, a higher FODMAP intake can increase our severity of symptoms and the risk. Um, so I still think, you know, that's an, it's not too difficult to change. Um, and if I can just minimise risk where I'm able to, that's something I'd definitely put in. Okay, cool. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, so the only other thing I'd add to that is just coming back sort of full circle to the start where we talked about, you know, the, the temperature versus humidity and other factors. Um, in, in dry heat, sweat is obviously much more effective at cooling you down. So um, the focus there should be really on, you know, uh, making sure that, you know, you're sweating well so heat acclimation obviously is really important getting enough fluid in but even like pouring water over yourself because that's going to evaporate off and it's almost like free sweat if you like mm. um, whereas in a very humid environment sweat is much less effective at cooling you down so some of those other strategies in terms of the slushies and the cold drinks and the pre-cooling and the um the pre-exercise hyperhydration because you know you're going to sweat more in a humid environment they all become more important in that sort of environment okay yeah that makes sense so because i just i could never explain why i just got this sudden burst of energy every time like from way back like when i was a kid if when you get like um water squirted over your head or for instance if you're um it's a really hot day and you go and swim and you you um, dive under the water or you go surfing or something like that it's like oh it just gives you this incredible rush um yeah yeah, and it feels like that when you run a marathon and you dump some water over your head. Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yes, this is that that evaporative effect. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to you both for coming on today. When was this? When will this paper be released? Uh, January is the plan. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So all the coaches will get it in time before Tokyo. Yes, although <laughs> uh, I guess all the marathon coaches probably don't need to read it now that's uh, moved up to Sapporo. Well, it's still going to be kind of warm, though. Yeah, yeah I, I haven't really looked at what the expected yeah. temperature is. I, I just know people have been saying it's going to be a lot less of an issue than it was in Tokyo itself. Less humid, s sort mm. of still high 20s temperature. Okay. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it would be silly to ignore uh, doing heat work by the sounds of it and, and, and taking all that on board. Yeah, and, you know, just, just like here, it could be a freak day where it's really humid in other parts of the country where it normally isn't yeah or you know it could be the opposite i remember in beijing a lot of people prepared for for heat for the beijing olympics and then like the cycling road race it turned out to be like 18 degrees and pouring with rain all mm -hmm. afternoon but you yeah. know that happens you know you have all these scientists and stuff that spend two and a half years preparing for this stuff and it all turns out to be rubbish on the day because mother nature takes a different turn yeah yeah well we can only hope for uh Super hot, terrible conditions again, just because that seems yep. to be when the Australians perform pretty well. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Uh, we will catch up with you guys again for that more generic 
um, chat about sort of race day nutrition and, and, and tapering carb loading because I think that's a really good one. Yeah. Awesome. Right. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Cool. Right. Cheers. No worries. Welcome to a special edition of the Inside Running podcast. We have a couple of nutrition experts, uh, sports dietitians joining us today, Steph Gaskell and Alan McCubbin. Welcome back, guys. You've got you've done it before here. You're doing yeah. it again. I was going to say it's been a while, probably a couple of years, I reckon, since we were on the podcast. Yeah. I, you popped up in my Skype contact list, so I know we did it. But I, <laughs> I can't fully remember it, but I know we did it. Yeah. And then um, we've been lucky enough to have you on our podcast too, Jules. That's right, and and I, I did I did sort of leave that out. But you guys are hosting the Long Munch, which just celebrates. Um, was it one year of recording and posting? Yeah, one yeah. year and the fiftieth episode. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And and I actually listened. Well, I listened to the interview that you guys did for that, and it was brilliant. So, uh, firstly, yeah, just we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. You you guys had Andy Jones on mm-hmm. from the Breaking Two project, the very first one, 2017. Yeah. Sub two hour marathon. Now, how did you get Andy? Who was it that hooked that up? Um. I think you contacted him, Steph, but uh, academics are pretty easy to find. If you Google them, usually it comes up to a nice university thing, and the university is very nice to hand out everyone's email addresses hmm. and make them public generally. So it's usually pretty easy to get in touch. But um, you know, the academic community is a pretty small one. Um, we don't necessarily all know each other straight away, but usually we know someone who knows each other, so there's always sort of mutual acquaintances. Uh, and everyone's very um, supportive of each other and, and very happy to help out. So, yeah, I mean, Andy's done quite a few podcasts. Um, I think ours was a little bit different in terms of having a specific nutrition focus as opposed to more a physiology focus, which he's had on some of the other ones. Um, but, yeah, he was he was happy to chat too and he was lovely and, and we had a great time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was it was quite insightful because we've all well, most of us have probably seen the documentary, and to hear from somebody who is behind the scenes is pretty cool. Um, mm. We had Collis, who was one of the paces, lives in Ballarat, and so he gave us a bit of an insight from the athlete perspective as well, which was fun. Um, yeah. We did the, he did that on a live podcast down in Ballarat. Um, Steph, what was the most interesting takeaway that you had from the um, the interview you did with Andy about the project? Yeah, um, I think for for me, it's it was more so just in terms of they they intervened with with nutrition with all of the athletes, um, but they they didn't kind of overstep their mark either. Like they kind of they appreciated that hey, these guys are doing something right. Like they're they've been running bloody fast, you know, marathons for a long period of time. Um, we already appreciate, you know, the, the certain strengths in their nutrition, particularly with Kenyan runners. They have a really carbohydrate-rich diet, which we already know that that's really good from a performance perspective. Um, so they intervened, but they didn't overstep the mark. Um, and then they also, you know, got the athletes to make sure that they had time to practice what they were actually changing and then what was really nice to see was the athletes like Kipchoge and 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 the athletes actually took that on board and they did practice it. 
Um, and then it was it was individualized too, you know. So they didn't actually all have the same carbohydrate intake goal or fluid goal, um, and they refined that as, as they went. Yeah. And Alan, anything sort of special that you picked up on? Yeah, well, I'm a bit of a physiology nerd. <laughs> he is so. more physiology nerd than me, probably like um, you, Jules. Yeah, so, so my pickup was more around the physiology side of things. And um, what's been really good, I think, out of this project is that that both Andy and, and the Nike team more broadly have actually published quite a lot of the data from this. I mean, obviously, it's de-identified, so you can't pick out who's Elliot and who's mm. Zerzane in, in the data. But they tested 16 people as part of the selection process and... Um, it's really interesting to see some of the results out of that. And we didn't touch on it a lot in the podcast. We, we did a little bit. But, um, you know, as Andy said in the podcast, you know, their, their VO2 maxes weren't actually that extraordinary, which you would assume that they would have to be. Um, you know, the average in the, in the 16 people that they tested was only 71 mils per kilo per minute. Uh, and I think only one of them, when you look into the paper, was above 77. So, I mean, that's obviously high compared to the average punter. But for an elite athlete, you tend to think about, you know, high 70s and maybe even into the 80s, and that there was very few of those in that group. But what they were able to do to be able to sustain that kind of 21.1 Ks an hour pace was having such amazing running economy. So they were able to, you know, make the most out of the oxygen that they've got available to them to translate that into to pure speed. Yeah. Uh, and secondly, they were able to sustain a pace that was equivalent of about 92% of their VO2 max, which is almost unheard of. So the fact that they could operate that close to their VO2 max and just maintain that for a long period of time without, you know, a massive accumulation of lactate and all the fatigue and everything that goes along with that was, was pretty special. Um, I mean, that said, of the, the 16 athletes they tested, only seven were able to maintain a steady state at that two-hour marathon pace. So clearly, you know, the three that they chose would have been amongst those seven. Um, and then the final thing I, that I really enjoyed was was picking Andy's brains about how he could try and predict the finish times of the athletes. So I remember back in 2017, I, you know, I was already following him on Twitter at that stage, and he would put out, you know, sort of predictions of what he thought. And I think even in the documentary, you see him writing it on a little scrap of paper, and he pulls it out the day after, and he was only out by about 18 or 20 seconds or something like that for Kipchoge. Um, and he sort of ran through in the podcast that process of, of how he tries to calculate those times and, and predict them. Yeah. Yeah, I often I was wondering why they didn't select Kenanisa Bikili, considering like you would consider that he has to be one of the most economical athletes given his mm. um, track pedigree. Mm. Uh, I wonder if he was one of those 16 they tested. Yeah, I don't know. And I guess there may have been some guys in the Nike stable that just weren't available at that time because they were focusing on other things as well, potentially. Yeah. And one thing also, in order to be able to sort of be successful in an event like that, you need to be consistent and you need to be injury-free. So if you've got mm -hmm. someone breaking down every few months, not mm -hmm. making start lines, sort of that sort of swingers, what do you call it, swingers chance or whatever, um, yeah. it's not yeah it'd be hard to base a project on that um yeah which sure. is kind of what bikili is like mm. um so yeah the long munch one one year down that's that's pretty cool congrats on on that you've had some yes, good guests i'll listen yeah um so similar to the last question what's the what's the most interesting takeaway that you've had steph like over the course of that year mm. oh there's been a lot like i've 
gotten something out of out of everyone um really um but i guess uh one of the the things i guess that still gets me is how common um we talk about and recently you know relative energy deficiency in sport Mm -hmm. um and just how common that is amongst um athletes um and how like I, do, I think that there needs to be more done in terms of how we can try and manage that better and, and prevent it from happening. And I think that that perhaps needs to start happening more from a youth perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we spoke to Izzy Bat Doyle and just about her experience when she went um, when she went to the US um, and, and that culture um, and just talking to her, to her you know, and interacting with a large number of, of athletes um, and um, how how much of an issue that is. Um, yeah. yeah. And then and then when you can see the role that nutrition can play, you know, when we do get it right. So, you know, we've got big implications in terms of health and performance. Um, but then when we actually tackle it and, and start to make sure the athlete is getting an, in enough energy for what they're doing, um what a big change that can make to both the health and performance. Um, so I, I, I think that's probably one of the most recent um, ones. Um, yep. uh, yeah. What What about you, Alan? What's the, what's sort mm. of been the biggest shock or surprise that you've come across or the biggest lesson? Yeah. Um, I think one of them was, was one of our most recent podcasts, again, around relative energy deficiency in sport. We had Sophie Mackay on, who's a, um, well, she's retired now. She was a cyclist who, um, she went on what was then a kind of a notorious selection camp for an Australian women's development team at the AIS. And they sort of rode up Threadbow and they, you know, sort of SAS style, wake them up in the middle of the night or suddenly get them off the bus and make them change a tyre randomly and in the freezing cold or something like that. And, you know, she got into a real hole. Um, she was already struggling before that, but that kind of finished her off. And um, I, I was very lucky to work with her over the sort of the 12 months after that. Uh, and, and she sort of came back and, and won a national title not long after. But the thing that really struck me, and I, I don't think I really understood it at the time uh, working with her, is that she was saying how much that sort of relative energy deficiency and that underfueling was impairing her her ability to think through a race situation, like the mm. tactical nous, the decision-making, the, the ability to read a race and know when to go and, and when to hold back and that tactical side of things. And she said, well, yeah, as she sort of recovered from the reds and um, her performance started to improve, at the same time she was able to improve her decision-making process in a race um, and that culminated, you know, 12 months later in winning the national criterium title. Um, I think the other highlight for me was um, actually the episode we did around gastrointestinal issues. So Steph, in all our episodes, we have like an expert and then an athlete to provide their perspective. So Steph, obviously that's her area of expertise. So she did that, but our um, guest athlete was a pro triathlete, Aniko Lanos, who um, started out with Olympic distance. He, he raced in Sydney and Athens Olympics. Uh, and then went into Ironman, I think finished second at the, the World Champs in, in Kona uh, in the, the late 2000s. But he then ran into a whole big problem with gastrointestinal issues. And he actually had to fly out here to Australia, come to our clinic at Monash and do the full assessment to actually work out what the problem was because it took him two or three years of trial and error and he just couldn't figure out what the problem was. Uh, and eventually 
through that um, the testing that he did in the lab, he was able to overcome that. And he describes that sort of the first race back, which was about maybe three months after he'd, he'd come down to Australia. And he was on the, the run leg of the Ironman. He just burst into tears because it was the first race he'd been able to do for, I think, almost four or five years. You know, his career was on the line that he was able to, you know, get 10Ks into the run and not feel like he was going to have to pull out because of gut issues. Um, yeah. And he, he actually broke down in tears on the on the podcast. Um, it, was, it was quite incredible. Yeah, wow. That's so head over. That sounds pretty familiar to Brett Robinson, actually, who is one of our marathoners who um, mm. who who continually struggles with gut problems in the marathon. But um, yeah. yeah, so the long munch. Check it out, listeners, because it is good. All right, so you guys are on here for a bit of a Q and A. Um, so we reached out to our patrons to to get a list of questions. Um, and I'm just going to fire a few at you because I haven't structured them or order them. Um, yep. Now, I'm going to go from the top down. So first question we had was, what's the recommended ratio for the three major macros for an endurance athlete? Someone yep. training. Let's just, I'll just throw out, I'll, I know you guys love the depend, it depends stuff. So I'm going <laughs> to go and say someone who's running 100K a week who runs, 30k on Sundays training for a marathon. All right. Well, this one's easy because it doesn't depend. Um, <laughs> Good. The, love that. <laughs> yeah, because the answer in this case is you don't use ratios at all in sports nutrition. Ah. So, in general, sort of population health, we talk about you know what is the percentage of calories that come from fat versus protein versus carbs. We don't use those ratios at all in sports nutrition, and the reason is that um, we tend to describe our needs in, in grams per kilo of body weight per day usually, or sometimes even broken down on a, a per meal basis, uh, particularly in the case of protein. And so I, I guess the way we tend to think of it is that your protein needs stay fairly consistent from day to day. Um, there's a little bit of debate around this, but the general consensus is somewhere around 1.6 to 1.8 grams of protein per kilo of body weight. So multiply that by your body weight in kilos per day is about right. Um, now, there's a bit of nuance in terms of how you spread that out over the day, but as a general rule. Mm -hmm. um, whereas your carbohydrate needs are going to go up and down depending on your training. So, you know, depending on what sort of event you're training for, what your training schedule looks like, you might have some really big days and then some either really easy or complete rest days where you're not exercising at all. And so your carbohydrate is really your, your high-intensity exercise fuel. So it makes sense that you need more of that leading into those hard sessions, whereas on a day that's a complete rest day, you know, your requirement for carbohydrate is almost nothing. So um, the carbs will go up and down depending on that. So it means that the ratio is going to be different if you yep. actually calculate it. It's going to be different on each day of the week depending on your training schedule. So it's more about matching the carbs to the training than it is hitting these ratios. And the um, just I'll quickly ask a question on that. So if, let's just use the example of this runner who on Saturday afternoon – starts maybe fueling a little bit for his Sunday long run, ups his carb intake. Sunday afternoon after his long run, he will have to recover with with a higher carb meal, won't he, or, or several higher carb meals. When does the recovery pe period finish? When does he start to back off his carb intake if, if Monday and Tuesday are low training days? Yeah, well, if Monday and Tuesday are low training days, I'd probably argue he doesn't necessarily need to go high carb in that post-training period on the Sunday afternoon right. anyway, okay. um, yeah. because he's got until whenever the next hard training session is to recover that carbohydrate. And if that's two or three days, then probably just your normal eating and drinking is going to get you there without having to 
be too aggressive or deliberate about it. Now, obviously, if you were um, backing up, you know, two hard days in a row, that's obviously a different story because then you've got a, a, a smaller window, I guess, to restore that carbohydrate before you've got to go out there and do it again. Yeah. Um, so it's more about, I guess, that window until the next session, I guess, will dictate how important that is or, or how aggressive you need to go with the, the post-exercise intake. Well, that's interesting because a lot of the runners, even in our group, will use Sunday afternoon as a bit of a uh, get like a cheating sort of day. It's like oh, I've done my long run; I can just do whatever I want. The Savo, like, the, we'll go out for a big breakfast, and then we might have pizza and beers and that kind of thing, just because you feel like you're filling the hole. Mm. That's yeah. not necessarily the case. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess the way I describe it to people is: imagine you're going on a road trip. Let's say you're driving from Melbourne to Adelaide. There's no point rocking up to Adelaide and going. Right, we're here. Now let's go fill up the car with all the stuff we need to bring. Yeah. You know, you got to fuel up before you're going to use the fuel, not after mm. you hit okay. destination. Mm. Interesting. Yep. Yep. And I think like the thing with that as well is, yeah, if you if you don't have another like hard session or long session, um, the next couple of days, then then that's okay. Um, but then if you do, um, then that that may be where you where you need to get it in and then just make sure that we're still getting in sufficient energy intake for um, for you as well. Um, yeah. So where does fat fit in the mix, Steph? Is that just an extra on top to make up calories or, or what? Yeah. Yeah, generally, like, I mean, in terms of when we tend to, like, look at plans and work out plans, um, you know, um, then we'd normally prioritise making sure we've got, you know, your protein hits, et cetera, and then then periodise the carbohydrate depending on what their training is. And then what what we tend to do is then look at, okay, well, what's then left over in terms of energy intake? And then that can generally be coming from the fats and prioritising that to be obviously coming more so where we can from, you know, your healthy fats. Mm-hmm. Um, that's talking about an individual that is following that way of eating. Obviously, you've got some people that prefer, you know, a higher fat way of eating. Um, and then we may do that differently. But but yeah, generally it's it's kind of a bit of that leftover. Yeah. Okay. So um, next question. We have cross country races that uh, are held in the afternoons here, um, and I've I've suffered this myself. What to eat in the morning, and then having a bad um, having a bad experience during the race because of getting the breakfast wrong. So. How do you how do you sort of strategize your nutrition for for a race that starts in the early arvo? Mm, yep. Um. So yeah, if it's um uh, more running base, what I tend to do is uh, again some people are going to be a bit more gut sensitive than than others. Um. But generally, I guess we're all a bit nervous when we've got a, a race or a bit excited. Um. So what you what you tend to do is like I'd think about, okay, well, what time is my race? If it's like, let's say it's two o'clock, then I'd probably have uh, like a more carbohydrate, more substantial um, meal at potentially like 11 o'clock. So then you've got at least a few hours for that to to digest and be absorbed. Um, And I'd actually also make sure that that meal is lower in in fibre and not too rich in protein because those nutrients just make it harder to break down and digest. Can um, you just throw a few examples? Examples, out? Like, yeah. yeah. Yep. 
exactly. So what I'd do is like I'd do like something like a couple of white bread sandwiches as an example, not whole grain or grainy grainy foods um, and and maybe a bit of ham and salad but not you know a monumental amount of salad and veggies it might be a couple of wraps um, or it might be a large wrap and more liquid based nutrition so it might be um, a large wrap and a sports drink even or a glass of cordial um, so it's just really easy to digest um, or it might be if you do pasta, if, if uh, people like pasta, it's more tomato-based and I wouldn't have a whole heap of minced meat in it because then that's, again, protein and it's, we don't load up a whole heap of cheese and creamy stuff in there because it's harder to digest. Um, or a lot of people actually find rice is pretty easy to digest. Um, so it might be as simple as a, a mince or chicken um, rice um, stir fry. Again, not loaded up with a with a lot of veggies. Um, yep. So yeah, I'd kind of start my breakfast might be something like as simple as some some cereal with some fruit or a, a few pieces of toast with like jam or Vegemite um, and a bit of sports drink. Then I might have a mid snack if I've got enough time, and it might be a banana or something. Um, it kind of depends when you get up in the morning too. Um, and then I'd make sure as well, like the night before, depending on what the event is, just probably also have that a bit carb rich as well. Um, so it might be as simple as a pasta bog dish or something. Yep. Well, we'll move on to your specialty, Alan. Electrolytes, <laughs> hydration, that stuff, <laughs> the ambiguous stuff. So... Yep. <laughs> We got Melbourne Marathon coming up. It's going to be in December. There, like, there is a chance it will be hot. It could be yeah. quite hot. Um, we have actually had a lot of questions in the store. Like, what should I be focusing on? How do I get my electrolytes in? So, yeah. let's say we wake up 25, 30 degrees, race morning. Um, how does an athlete know how many electrolytes they need to take throughout that that run? And and how do they uh, ratio it compared to how much water they drink. Is there something that they can follow? Not at the moment, there isn't. Um, there is currently zero guidelines on electrolyte replacement, which is kind of ironic because there's you know a whole industry set up around sweat testing <laughs> and measuring people's electrolyte losses and then providing drinks with all different amounts of electrolytes to replace it. You've got tablets, you've got capsules mm. and all sorts of mm. things. But um, the reality is there is no current guidelines on electrolyte replacement. So it's one of the things that I think most sports dietitians early in their career, they're like, oh, great, there's all this sweat testing stuff, and they go out and do this sweat test, and they get a result, and then they're like, and now what do we do with it? Like, mm. we know how much electrolytes they lose, but how much should we replace? And currently there isn't any um, good research on that. It's an area I'm I'm sort of actively working in at the moment. Um, what I can say from, from the stuff I've done so far is that electrolyte replacement is very much tied to water replacement. In, in other words, if you're drinking a lot of water, then you're going to need more electrolytes. If you're drinking not much water, you need less electrolytes. So I, I think in the past, people have kind of said, well, I lose, you know, 500 mils and milligrams an hour of sodium, let's just say, so I should replace 500 milligrams. And they've kind of completely uncoupled the electrolyte replacement from the water replacement. But the reality is that the two interact in the body. And so if you decouple them, you're starting to potentially run into trouble. So... I guess what I, all I can say at this stage is probably the more aggressively you're able to replace your fluid, the more focus you need on electrolytes. If you're a front runner in a marathon, it doesn't matter how 
good you are at grabbing cups or bottles and drinking. You're like you're just going too fast to be able to consume probably even 50% of what your sweat rate is. So you might be sweating out a couple of liters an hour if you're a you know a sub three hour runner. There's no way you're going to be able to drink more than a liter of an hour running at mm. that pace. So in that situation, I'd probably suggest you actually need virtually no sodium at all because uh, essentially you, your blood sodium concentration is going to go up from the dehydration that you're experiencing. It's only when you, uh, maybe the, the back markers who are uh, got much more access to fluid, much more opportunities to drink it, they're going to tolerate it. They can actually swallow it without choking. Um, they might slow down or walk through uh, aid stations and things where there's a risk that they'll actually potentially even overconsume water, but they're going to get closer to complete fluid replacement. And that's when you, you actually need more sodium. In terms of exactly how much, hard to say for sure, uh, but we know it's certainly not 100%. Uh, and it, it'll vary from person to person, but from anywhere from 20% up to maybe about 70, 75% uh, of your losses replaced. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, I can't put a number on it. Yeah. So. It is difficult to take water on during a, a marathon, especially if you've only got the cups as your option. Yeah. Um, and so it's perhaps best not to stress too much about it then, the electrolyte component on race yeah. day. Totally, totally. And I, I, I guess I went into my PhD in this kind of area with this question of, you know, should we test and target replace sodium or should we just what I call season to taste? You know, in other words, use sodium as... Um, you know, it's a balance for the sweetness of the drinks and the gels and things like that. And so you're doing it from a, a flavour perspective um, to make things a bit more pleasant for you as much as anything. And I think in that scenario that you just described, um, season to taste is probably the best approach. Yeah, good. I think I had a um, someone, I can't remember who it was, but I got a message. Someone, like, someone had advised that uh, on the body weight loss or, or, or um, water loss, um, fluid loss percentages and how that degrades performance. But I but I always remember you telling me that Gebra Selassie lost 10% of his body weight <laughs> when, he, when he ran the world record. Yep. Um, so can you just is, – has anything changed in your opinion around that? <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting one. There's uh, probably a couple of parts to this. One is that – almost all the studies ever done on hydration are not blinded. In other words, you do two trials and one of them you're drinking lots of fluid and one you're not drinking any fluid. And it's pretty obvious, you know whether you're drinking fluid or not. So, you know, there's quite likely a placebo effect in, in that because you know whether you're drinking or not. There is um, a researcher, we actually had him on our podcast, uh, one of the very, or the, the episode that was coupled with your one, actually, um, Lewis James uh, from Loughborough University, and he's done a couple of studies where they've actually used nasogastric tubes to put water in so that people don't know whether they're getting water or not. And it does make a difference still. So even if you don't know whether you're hydrated or not, you, you're better off being hydrated. So I think there's definitely, um, you know, the 2% the is probably still the best guideline we have it's probably not perfect and as lewis described if you look at the individuals within the studies that he's done you know some people can tolerate a five percent body mass loss and not change performance whereas other people they get to a bit more than one percent and all of a sudden their performance is dropping off so it's probably quite individual as well how you respond to that sort of fluid yep. loss um, but yeah unfortunately we don't have much more than that at this stage okay good well next one Steph, we're getting into your zone now. Mm -hmm. What's the typical guide 
for fueling during an ultra marathon. Yeah. And are there any differences for the front of the back to the back of the pack runners? Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the typical guide um, for ultra marathon um, is is what we'd say it is different to to like your marathon distance and your half marathon distance. Um, obviously, we're going at a lower intensity generally, like it will still, you know, change up and down. Um, and then the other thing that's super common in, in particularly in ultra um, endurance events is um, gastrointestinal symptoms. Um, because generally the longer that we're um, exercising, um, the slower that our gut is able to function, digest and, and absorb. Um, so we, we think um, at the moment in terms of research, we've got this guideline that potentially for females, we may be kind of at 0.8 grams per kilo of their body mass is, is kind of a target of what we may aim for per hour. Um, and then for males, it may sit at about one gram per kilo of body mass um, per hour. So that may be like a, a potential target for them. Um, but again, what we do is I'd um, work out, well, what are they actually currently doing? Um, and then work out, well, what is the, the pace um, and what's their aim for the event? And then um, work potentially towards what that goal is. Um, and so let's say you've got like a, um, I don't know, a 60 kilo um, athlete um, and let's say the, the female. Um, so we may be working towards 50 grams of carbohydrate for them per hour. Um, but, but I'm not going to actually have that in a in a bolus, just like in your marathon as well. What we want to do is have that nice and small and frequent if we can. So I would cut that up into every 15 to 20 minutes of trying to get that carbohydrate in, um, and then along with a bit of a bit of fluid, um, and that is actually also going to be better for your gut to tolerate um, because your gut then has a bit bit more time to kind of break it down, digest and and absorb. Um, and in terms of is it different for a front, you know, runner or a back of the pack runner? Um, yeah, for sure. So, you know, if, you, if you're at the front, you are going to be generally burning more carbohydrate because your intensity is going to be higher. Um, your fitness level is better. Um, so, yeah, I'd probably be going a bit more towards a higher amount of carbohydrate than a back of the pack. Um, and then just working with that person, like what is their actual goal? Is it just to go out and enjoy? Um, and they're going to be doing a lot more walking. Then my carbohydrate intake goal is going to be less. Good. Okay. Um, the fun one and probably the biggest surprise when, when Steph, you wrote my um, marathon carb load program or diet was, was the total volume here. This was the biggest shock to me. I thought I would been doing it right until until I saw what you had written me, and um, and I and then I was like, this is going to change everybody because I was doing more than other people that I knew, and I was doing half. I was eating half as much as as I should have. So I want to run through the carb load. Let's uh, let's start with let's start with. Your guidelines on carb load, we'll start with you, Alan. How far out do we start carb loading and what are the key principles of a good carb load? Make sure yeah. you agree with me, Al. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what Steph says, so let's yeah. let's compare. Yeah. yeah, so in terms of how far out you start, you know, people used to talk about three, four days. Um, 
nowadays we tend to talk about sort of one to two. Um, I, I tend to go sort of, you know, one and a half-ish. Um, and, and what I'll often do now actually is just to make sure people are comfortable the night before a race, assuming it's a morning, early morning start, is actually kind of stop the loading per se at sort of afternoon tea time the night before, you know, the, the afternoon before, and then go back to kind of a normal size dinner because you've mm. kind of done the hard work then. Because when you eat carbohydrate, the excess that you don't need immediately is stored into your muscles and it doesn't come out again until you actually use those muscles. So as long as you're not, you know, going out and running the, the day before, you're not going to use it up. Um, in terms of how much we're talking about, between 8 and 12 grams of carbs for every kilo of your body weight in a 24-hour period leading into the race and then obviously depending on how many 24-hour periods you choose to do. That, once you translate it into food, is extraordinarily difficult and this is where the choice of food becomes really important. So, you know, some people just say, oh, okay, I'll just have a big pasta meal the night before and I say to them, okay, well, you know, your 8 to 12 grams per kilo, that means you need probably six, 700 grams of carbs in that 24 hours. Well, your big bowl of pasta is giving you the first 100. Where's the, the other 600 coming from? Mm. And that's when they kind of go, oh, okay, there's a bit more to it just as, yeah. as you described. So I guess in terms of some tips on how to make that easier, um, the first thing would be to minimise the things that aren't going to get you to carb loaded that come from your food that are going to fill you up because – when you're eating that volume of food, and, and you might have experienced this yourself, Jules, did you feel like you were sort of pouring concrete into your stomach come four in the afternoon? Yeah, yeah, it was just yeah. a lot of, a lot of sick, just sickening kind of because yeah. you're putting so much, like you said, solids down. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And I mean, carbohydrate by definition is starch and sugar, so the most compact sources are going to be sugar. But then you're just having all this sickly sweet stuff mm. potentially, so that that makes it challenging as well. So, I guess the first thing would be to minimise sort of the, the fiber, the fat content, um, to some extent the protein content as well. Like this doesn't need to be a high protein day. And so if you think about like lunchtime might be, you know, as Steph described earlier, you know, rice and chicken or something like that, the chicken portion is really just there for flavor. Um, mm. You don't really need it there. And so it's it's about maximizing the rice portion and minimizing the chicken portion. Um in terms of, you know, fibre, this is a time to go for white bread, white pasta, white rice rather than wholemeal or, or brown rice or whatever, um, just because you're never going to get that volume in. And if you think about it, if you're eating double the amount of carbs and it's low fibre carbs, you're probably going to get the same amount of fibre just because you're eating more of it mm. um, by the time you, you add it all up. Um, and then the second thing I'd, I'd really emphasise is using liquids, using fluids to get your carbs in because, you know, if you're going to be drinking water anyway, if you're not getting carbs in the liquid, then you're going to have to drink that fluid and then eat food that has the carbs as well. Why don't you get them both in the one package? It makes life so much easier in terms of the total volume. So, so when um, it hits your stomach, a can of Coke is not a great deal different to um, a packet of lollies, if, if that's a similar amount of sugar. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's all going to digest down. Even the starch from from rice or bread or pasta or something like that, by the time it gets down to your small intestine, it's all broken down into sugar, yeah. um, and then then absorbed into you, you know, through your gut. So, yeah, it doesn't really matter what it starts out as; it's whatever's easiest to get into. I mean, I, I would tend not to use something like Coke or lemonade or something like that. One that the fizz, like if you're having a big volume, that's not going to be too comfortable, and and also just the sweetness of it. What I tend to use these days is actually just buy like plain maltodextrin, which is sort of the base ingredient in most gels. 
um, in some sports drinks as well. And it's basically a type of carbohydrate that almost um, behaves like sugar in terms of dissolving in liquids, but it has no sweet taste to it. It almost tastes like nothing, really. And so you can put heaps of that into like just a water bottle. You can add, you know, um, some people might add an electrolyte tablet for flavor or just a squeeze of lemon juice or a drop of cordial or something. Uh, and then you can just sip on that between sort of breakfast and lunch and then another one between lunch and dinner and then maybe have one with dinner. And all of a sudden you've got, you know, 200, 250 grams of carbs in without having to really feel like you've, Good. you know, eaten out your fridge. Yeah, um, yeah we, did, we did a podcast on this with a, with a mountain biker, Karen Hill, and um, we, we go through this in a lot of detail. So if anyone's interested in, in the yeah. nitty-gritties of this, I'd, I'd suggest going to have a listen to that one. I think it's 9B episode off the top of my yep. head um, and she actually got to the point where I'd refined it so much for her because she was a client of mine that she was actually complaining that she was hungry while she was carb loading <laughs> which I'd never heard in my life uh, and obviously very different to the experience that you had yeah yeah well that is I mean that's pretty handy if she can get is there an upper limit to that 12 grams above that is it useless um potentially I mean the, the bigger you are or the more muscle you have theoretically the um the more carbohydrate you can store, but then it is in grams per kilo of body weight, so it should scale to body weight anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of point going much above that. Mm. Yeah, I think and, it's only, oh, like, sometimes the Tour de France guys, right, like, because um, they're, like, stage after stage after stage, that's yeah. where they, you know, can potentially, some of them are hit, hitting, like, 15 grams of kilo per body mass, but, yeah. again, lighter body weight too. Yeah, um, but also they're, they're in a situation where, like, they've got the four or five-hour stage today exactly. and then they've got another four or five-hour exactly. stage tomorrow. So they're essentially they're consuming a bucket load of carbs during the stage and then they're almost like carb loading within a shortened time frame that afternoon and evening for the next day stage. Mm-hmm. And so you almost got two back-to-back carb loads joined together. So you're right. I mean, they can hit yeah. 18 grams per kilo, but a lot of that is from the first stage rather than preparation for the next one. Yeah. And in Ballarat, we have Steve Monaghetti who swore by the depletion super compensation type theory for carb loading um he tells a story about being out at a restaurant and just ordering a steak trying to trying to order a steak with no potatoes and um and about how cranky he got and how hungry he got in the days leading in and then and then loading up heavy uh how much merit is there in that sort of strategy well, when we spoke to Jose, um, who was on which episode number was that? Oh, you're good with episode numbers. Uh, 9A, I think. 9A. So yep, yeah. beautiful. Um, like I actually asked him that because I know like other elite level marathoners do it as well, as well as not, you know, recreational will do it too. And it was that Scandinavian model that, um, I mean, that's how carb loading was kind of first known. They did that depletion phase for a few days and then loaded. Um, But, yeah, Jose was like, yeah, there's there's no kind of extra benefit of of doing that um, to what we know at the moment. Um, So, yeah, maybe... Steve found it beneficial because he, I don't know, felt so terrible and then you feel so bloody good after. So maybe there's a psychology perspective of that. Um, Yeah, and I think, like, the important thing is um, just make sure that when you you are doing that loading period, um, 
we we say 24 to 36 hours is sufficient going along with a good exercise taper. Um, often athletes are not so great with their exercise taper. Um, so that may be where you need to bump it up a little bit more if the, they're not tapering. But I mean, yeah, they should be tapering. Yeah, you'd hope so. <laughs> you'd hope so. <laughs> yeah. All right, good one. Now, the during race nutrition, probably the other most interest like what we're all most interested in um i guess we'll start off with guidelines again uh, you touched on it with the ultra marathon steph as we move down to the the marathon do we need less or more carbs um what is the the upper limit for for an athlete in terms of carb intake yep do you want me to go how or you want um oh, i'm happy to go if you want yep whatever yeah. all right yep. um yeah, so I mean, the guidelines around this uh, changed about 15 years ago to kind of suggest, you know, up to sort of 90 grams an hour of, of carbohydrate is possible. The thing to remember, I guess, with a marathon, I mean, there's the shorter duration, but also the higher pace that you're running at. So theoretically, you should be using more, you know, you're, you're burning through more grams of carbs per minute or per hour of, of running compared to an ultra. Um, and so what you tend to see if you get someone in the lab and you measure how much carbs they're using per minute or per hour um, at sort of race pace, it's always going to be higher than what you can possibly consume during exercise. Mm -hmm. And particularly in the marathon, you know, we talked about it with fluid earlier, like it's just so much harder to um, choose, swallow, um, tolerate that volume because of the intensity that you're running at and the amount that you, you know, your gut's bouncing up and down as well. Mm. So, I mean, that guideline of 90 grams per hour obviously came out of lab research, primarily in cyclists, uh, and it does get used in, in professional cycling. Um, some people can even push that higher again. Uh, but what we tend to see over and over again is just that well, that amount for the vast majority of people just doesn't work in running, um, either because they don't tolerate it from a gut point of view or they can't physically access 90 grams mm. of carbs like along the course. Um, or they just don't have the opportunities to drink or, or eat that amount of carbs without, you know, choking on it or having to stop running, which obviously if you're, if you're at the competitive end of the field is, is not an option. Um, we, we actually spoke to Andy Jones about this for the Breaking 2 project, and he said that they aimed for about 70 grams an hour, and obviously they were able to increase the access to carbohydrate because they could feed them off the bike as regularly as they wanted, so they weren't limited to stationary aid stations. Yeah. Every every 5k along the course uh, and even then um you said they didn't get through that whole 70 grams an hour so it was probably somewhere between 60 and 70 grams per hour was about what they managed so i think in a marathon it's not so much about what you actually need it's more so about what you're actually practically going to be able to achieve yep um so i, I think if you if you're getting for somewhere around that sort of 50 to 60 grams an hour you're probably doing pretty well in most cases uh, yeah. And if you're just doing it to, to finish, you're doing it for charity, something like that, and you you know sort of four and a half hours plus, probably only about 20 to 30 grams an hour is, is, is enough to, to get you through, and it's more there to be protective of your gut as much as it is to, to fuel the exercise. So a gel an hour almost for that sort of athlete. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And I'd, yeah. with with that gel an hour, try and make sure you start off that um, early if you can, because we know that when you consume the carbohydrate, it could take anywhere from 45 to 60 minutes or so for it to actually get 
to your muscles. So we, we always get kind of this hit when we initially take something um, because of our brain, our receptors. Um, so we feel good when we put carbohydrate in our mouth, but for it to actually be used for the muscles, it takes time. So Alan and I would always usually say start earlier rather than later. Mm. And what we'll often say is back it off near the end. Like in your last 30 minutes or so or um, of your marathon, like, and if you just like can't, you know, stomach things, don't worry about it or just swish some carbohydrates, spit it out if you want, you'll still get a benefit. Um, but yeah, like don't just listen to the gels that you see because often you'll see in all of them, oh, take it 45 minutes into yeah. it, you know, um, but that's that's a bit too general. And yeah. Um, there was a bit of a war on fructose for a while, wasn't there? Like um, we, we, we had a lot of products coming out saying no fructose and that was like their, their selling point. Um, is that something to avoid? So fructose, yeah. I guess, has been, yeah, obviously a bit maligned, probably more from the health point of view rather than the performance aspect. Um, with the the way that carbohydrates absorbed from our gut during exercise there's kind of two two mechanisms so basically all the carbohydrate we eat will digest down into one of three sugars so glucose fructose and what's called galactose which is one half of lactose so it only really comes in dairy products so it's probably not relevant during exercise um so so it's primarily glucose and fructose and um there's a I guess a ceiling or a limit to how much you can get out of your gut and into the bloodstream you know per minute or per hour and for glucose it's thought to be around 60 grams an hour um, and then fructose can kind of be additive so if you're going much above 60 grams an hour of carbs during exercise actually the fructose is required because you need that to be absorbed through the other channel in the, mm. in the gut wall um, I guess the other thing that people might talk about, and, and maybe you can add to this, Steph, is the potential malabsorption of fructose and then causing gut issues uh, because it is technically what we call a, a FODMAP. Um, but generally speaking, if people are having that alongside glucose, um, it, it's reasonably well tolerated for the most part and some of the other FODMAPs that are often causing issues. I don't know if you want to add to that, mm. Steph. Yeah. No, um, yeah, you said that well. I think, yeah, exactly that. If someone is trying to get more than 60 grams of carbs an hour, which some people will, um, then that's where you do want to potentially look at the at the fructose, um, particularly if you're going more than 70 grams of, of carbs an hour. Um, and that's why you will see that in your gels, um, that, that there'll be glucose and fructose because they're kind of marketed generally to that. But there's definitely heaps of gels that are just glucose or maltodextrin based because um, well, for a number of reasons, because they know it might cause a, a gut issue and also maltodextrin-based because it's less um, sweet. Um, and then, um, yeah, um, some people do have, have problems with absorbing fructose because it's absorbed a lot more slowly. Um, so if you are someone that is at uh, more of an increased risk of um, of gut symptoms, um, then that may be something that you want to be more careful of. Yep. Okay, cool. Um, all right, so last one, post-run refuel strategy. Uh, was there a recent little study that I saw that came out, something around it's only relevant for carbohydrate, that 15-minute window, was it, post-run, post where you need to get something in in the first 15 minutes and protein you can you can refuel within a couple of hours or something. Um, what anyway? Forget yeah. that. But what's your yep. um? What's you? What's your Take. rules for for post? post yeah. Run? Yep. Um. 
It, it will, I know you hate that depending answer, so you didn't give me a specific situation there. So, All right, okay, um, Sunday long run, two <laughs> hours in the bush. So here you go, two hours in the bush, it's it's a hard run. Thank you. And then do you have another important session, how long away? Wednesday morning. Wednesday, and when's that, that long run in the bush? What day is that? Sunday morning, Sunday, but we, gotcha. we're also running every day. Okay, good. Thank you. That's all I need. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, um, all right. I would I would try and be proactive in your recovery nutrition um, if you can. I think it also just puts good good habits in there for you. Um, so, you know, if we wait too long, we're more likely to get tempted um, with, I guess, less ideal choices, or we might forget about it. Um, so generally, if we can get something in soon after, um, our muscles are the most receptive, particularly to carbohydrates soon after exercise. Um, so it will just be able to absorb and take it on um, really well soon after. Um, and and uh, if if I was having another hard session, like particularly multi-stage racing, um, then um, if if it's less than eight hours between another hard event, then I'm going to be like even more proactive in in getting something in. Um, so I would try and get in some really easy to digest carbs to to start with, um, and I generally try and um, potentially if you've done a decent run and your gut's not all that settled, just um, try and do small and frequent intake if you can, because um, your gut may not be able to tolerate a whole heap, you know, straight after. Um, so even if you made that into liquid nutrition, you know, it might be a fruit smoothie or something, and mm -hmm. you can just sip um, on that. Might even be on the way home if you've if you've got a long trek back. Um, and I'd also try and get in some protein for sure because that's going to help with your muscle repair, tissue repairing um, and your recovery. So generally about 20 to 30 grams is a, as um, general advice uh, of a protein hit. Um, and again, if you had like, you know, like a, a large fruit smoothie, so you've got 500, 600 mils of milk in there and maybe even some yogurt, you've got your, your 20 to 30 gram hit in there. And then you've also got fluid and elect electrolytes in there as well. So you'll, you'll retain that fluid really well because you've got the, the nutrients in there. So, um, so post run, I'd always be thinking about um, getting in some hydration, so so rehydrating and then repair. So that's the protein aspect. Re um, refueling the carbohydrate bit, and then small and frequent just from the gut um, bit, and then from immune health, um, get in some of those carbs, and then when you can, get in a bit of fruit and veg as well, and that will just get your vitamins and minerals in. Um, but yeah, then if I've got another hard run eight hours later, I'm kind of doing that like continuing to to getting carbohydrate to make sure then I'm ready for the for the next um run okay anything you'd like to add to that strategy Alan no I think uh Steph's covered that off nicely with what we call the the R's the five R's of recovery so yeah I think it's fine all right I got one more question then Melbourne Marathon's coming up this weekend no a couple of weekends now what are your three tips for what? What are your three tips for an athlete going out there, um, and maybe doing a marathon for the first time in terms of their fueling? We'll do we'll do one tip each actually. Steph, you can get the first crack at it. First crack. Um, 
Well, my biggest tip is make sure whatever you're going to do on that race day, you've done in your training. So I really, really hope that you've practiced some of your nutrition in your training. Don't copy what your peers do, please. Like, like make sure you you practice on yourself because we are all individual. Um, and I'd say um, just um, small and frequent intake if you can. And um be mindful, generally drink to thirst, you know, even if it's a hot day, um, generally drink drink to thirst. All right. She's taken three tips, Alan. Sorry. I hope you've got one left. <laughs> yeah, well, I think they were kind of all three. The only, the only thing I would add potentially to that, and it's kind of an extension of, of what Steph said rather than anything different, is think about um, do you know what products they're providing on course in terms of aid stations? SIS. Okay. So if you can get hands on some SIS between now and then, so not only practice the quantities, but practice with the exact products that you're going to have on course. Yep. So you don't get any nasty surprises on the day. You don't want to get there and pick up the first cup, have this grand plan to get all your carbs from sports drink provided on the course. You take a sip and you spit it out and you can't tolerate it. Yeah. And then you're going to break down in tears because your whole plan's just gone out the window. Actually, yep. that was a tip also from um, just thinking about Andy um, and something he learned from Louise too is, um, yeah, all athletes are different, so their tastes are different as well. So you really do need to make sure that um, you like what you take. Mm. Yep. Yeah, I like. I thought that too. And, and even just wake the senses up a little yes. bit with a different flavour. Surprise. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Just yep. keep yourself like a little bit entertained almost. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I can just see see Louise at an aid station like sneaking some menthol into a drink at the mm -hmm. 30K mark and someone's chugging it down and gets this massive hit of like yep. cold menthol in the mouth or something. Yeah, menthol. yeah, or something bitter. Yeah. Wake up. They should change that flavour because no one actually likes menthol. <laughs> and I know, and I know it's such a big thing for the, like you guys in the labs. You love menthol so much, but but no athlete likes menthol. I'm giving it a tip. You don't like that minty, fresh taste. No, not on course. Only when I brush my teeth. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Again, oh, one much. more shout out to the Long Munch. You're on every platform, aren't you? Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly all the major ones. And yeah. um, because it's our one-year anniversary, our, our next – well, maybe by the time this is released, it'll be out. Our next podcast after the Breaking 2 one is a one-year summary where Steph and I recorded it the other day. We've gone through and done like a two-minute summary of every topic that we've covered Ooh. over the year. So if you okay. want to not have to play everything back at three <laughs> times speed and find out all the information, just listen to that one and you'll get a, a summary of every topic. Yeah, yeah cool. I'm, I'm a rambler, as you know. So Alan's is like real nice and succinct, and mine is a bit more rambled. But Alan's done a really good job of um, editing me out in in, a, in too many <laughs> rambles. I thought. <laughs> well, I'll but, um, let Brady. I'll let Brady edit out today's episode. Yeah, but thanks also to you, Jules, because you really helped inspire us with the the long munch and gave us. Um, some really good tips in terms of just how we actually construct the um, the episodes with an actual question. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right. Well, thank you guys and go check out the long munch. Awesome. Thank you. See ya. <laughs>